Expositional preaching is something I love. It's when you jump in a book and you just keep working your way through it. We're going to get back there in about seven or eight more weeks when we go starting through 2 Samuel. We enjoyed 1 Samuel. We'll just keep going on through 2. But at the year end of 2023 and now the beginning of 2024, we started this eight-week series called Gospel 101. Why? Well, I've already told you a little bit why. I'm different. I mean, in 2014, I was a Presbyterian minister. In 2024, I'm a Presbyterian minister. In 2014, I believed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In 2024, I believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In 2024, I thought about the gospel like some of my friends in the area thought about the gospel in 2024. Did I say 2024? 2014. In 2024, now I recognize that even in our denomination, even in this presbytery, there are two groups of Presbyterian churches, all saying, we stand in allegiance to the Westminster Confession of Faith. But they mean different things by what is found therein. It's kind of like the difference maybe between the, the Tea Party and the MAGA people and the, the old school Republicans. And they're all saying we're conservatives. But they all mean different things by that. In the United States, so many people call themselves Christians. But then you look around going, we got to mean different things by what you're saying. And so I want to share with you at the beginning of this year with all my heart, what I believe. And then this is going to become part of our leadership series that as an elder and a deacon and as a men's ministry leader and women's ministry and small group leader, we want you to go through this because we want to speak the same language so that when we're saying this is what the law is, this is what the gospel is, this is what we mean by sin or depravity, this is what we mean by worship or progressive sanctification, we want to use the same language I won't be here forever. One day, it'll be my day to do the Jim Stevenson thing and pass the baton on to the next guy who's going to come around. But I want this to be part of my legacy. It's what Christ has done in my heart. I'm desperately trying to, to pour it out into your hearts because I think this is the best news ever. But you've got to get a little bit heady, a little bit theological. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What in the world is the law? I have a couple passages of Scripture I want to read for you. You're going to have to either just listen or log on to your phone or tablet or find it in your Bible quickly. But here we go. Psalm 15. Maybe you just want to listen. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." At this point, maybe the oh me is better than the amen. Matthew 5, 19, the words of Jesus. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to relax and do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Once again, probably a better oh me than an amen. Matthew 5, 48. You therefore, Jesus says, must be perfect, even as the heavenly Father is perfect. Paul writes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Peter writes, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In the book of Hebrews it says, only those who are holy will see the Lord. We sang the song, Speak, O Lord. How does the Lord speak to us? Today, I'm going to tell you three ways he speaks. The first one is just a real short one. We talked about it last week. It's awesome. As he speaks to us with his creation voice. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, this goes on. There's no place where his speech is not heard. In Corinthians, through creation, God's invisible attributes are seen. You get to see his power his enormity, his creativity, his beauty, his organization, his detail. Our God is an awesome God. And Laura and I got to drive to Asheville yesterday, and we see the mountains. We drive by lakes. When you see nature and pets and animals, our God is an awesome God. That was last week's sermon. He's high. He's holy. He's to be reverenced. And he's screaming and shouting to us all through his creation voice. Secondly, God calls out to all people, especially those who read his word, through his law voice. Now, his law voice is that when he decides to speak as a sovereign master. Uh, this is like when I drive down the highway, as I talked about last week, and all of a sudden you see 55 miles an hour. I might sing the song, I can't drive 55, but they don't care. They're the sovereign master who has declared this is the speed. We don't care if you like it or not. Thus says the master. This is what happens if you put up a sign that says no trespassing. It doesn't mean I, I have a love for you or a care for you. It just means I'm the one who owns this, and I'm telling you, don't come past that fence. This is what God does. He is the sovereign master of all men. And he communicates these things we call commands, rules, precepts, ordinances, decrees, principles. This is his law language. These are the thou shouts. These are the thou shalt nots. And they're everywhere. This is way more than just the big great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. For that one is divided into two, love God and love your neighbor. That two is divided into ten. We call them the ten commandments. They have been inscribed on tablets, but also written on men's hearts. 
But then there's also 613 ceremonial and civil commandments in the Bible that we could add to that list. And it's way more than just the Old Testament. Like some like to think the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. That's wrong. For in the New Testament, there's all kind of commands about what you're to do with sex, what you're to do with family, how you're to parent, how you're to do business, how you're to do church, who's supposed to be an elder. Those are laws. This is just God being the sovereign master, telling you what's to be. All that he demands, all that he forbids, he is to be feared and awed and respected and reverenced. He is to be obeyed because he's the sovereign master. One would be a fool to disobey the awesome God that we talked about last week. So God speaks through the law and he speaks as a sovereign master. But also through the law, he speaks more than just as a sovereign master. He speaks as a gracious counselor. Sometimes people give us laws for our own good because they love us. I can think of a parent who says, okay, kids, bedtime's going to be 7.30 p.m. Why do they say such? They know what's best for their children. They know how much rest they need before the next day starts. Some of you have sent your kids off to college, and you've said, man, the party scene can be big when you go to college. Don't drink and drive. And if you ever, ever, ever find yourself in a position where you're somewhere you're not supposed to be, maybe or maybe not even in a condition you're not supposed to be in, you give me a call. I will always Uber you home all day long. We'll ask questions the next day. Why would someone make a rule like don't drink and drive? Because it's good for the person. It's good for society around the person, people in the car, people outside the car. This is what happens when the one who gives the law is not just a sovereign master, but he's the omniscient one who speaks truth and who loves you and tells you this is the way to walk. Walk in it. It's what God does when he shows up in Eden and he tells Adam and Eve, buffet from all the trees, don't eat from that one. He's not holding out on them. He's telling them that which is absolutely best for them. This is what happens when God shows up at Sinai and he says, all right, at this point in life, I want you to not eat barbecue. Pork is off limits. Why? Well, at that point, it was just best for them not to. He wasn't just arbitrarily writing rules. He loves his people. That's why we can say with the psalmist, blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. We can say with David, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In Romans 7, he says, I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, God gives you the law like a sovereign master, but he also communicates like the best coach you've ever seen who wants to change the way you shoot your free throws. The wisest teacher who wants you to understand the why and not just the how to do things. The awesome father of children, he's the wonderful counselor, the gracious counselor. One would be a fool not to accept all the counsel and law that comes from God and stiff arm him. So he speaks to us as a sovereign master, a gracious counselor. He speaks to us as a gracious governor or legislator as well. He prescribed laws for Israel. This is how you're to do politics back in the day. He does not expect every nation 
to do exactly like they did. But we call it in theological terms, the general equity. You're supposed to read those scriptures and learn from them and say, wow, that's what good government would kind of look like. So maybe a term you're more familiar with is the Judeo-Christian ethic. This idea that America is blessed because it's been built on this foundation of wisdom literature we call the law. And it's awesome to grow up in such a privileged state. Paul wrote, writes to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And so we have a God who not only talks to you as an individual and says, I want to be your counselor, or he does family counseling and talks to you as the parents of your family, but he talks to culture. He talks to the United States. And this is what he says, I really care about you. He talks to the United States and says, I want human flourishing to be maximized here, and then I want you to be a, a, a light to the world. How happy are the people who don't stiff-arm God. One would have to be a fool, an arrogant fool, to say, I'm not listening to the sovereign master. I'm not listening to the wonderful counselor, or the gracious counselor, and I'm not listening to the king of kings, the president of presidents, the legislator of legislators, the executive of all executives, the judge of all judges. I'm not listening to him. We know better. Oh, the law is gracious. Are you seeing that? This is good that he gives us this. Some people have this wrong idea that only the gospel is gracious, the law is ungracious. Oh, no, no, no. The law is so gracious. It's a gracious voice of God. So he speaks to us, as you've seen, as a sovereign master, a gracious counselor, a gracious legislator, the fourth way. He talks to us as a scrupulous and gracious judge. Now, I had to put two words there, scrupulous, and I put scrupulous before the word gracious. I've already proven that he's gracious. But as a judge, you need to understand the scrupulous part first. I've already read to you the scriptures about how serious God, the Father, and the Son are about their commandments. Don't relax them. Do them all, in all your conduct, whether you're eating, drinking, or whatever you do. There really are no major and minor commandments. They all come from God, and there are, none of them are up for grabs. The only response is, yes, Lord, yes, sir. Because there are no major and minor sins. Anything that you do that is not in accordance with God is just coming from your sin nature. And so Jesus looks at us and says, don't you think for a moment that this new thing I'm doing is relaxing the holiness of, the God, of God or, or diminishing the need you have to follow after his wisdom? God is serious about his commandments, and we're to be serious. And God expects these commandments to be kept externally and internally. He expects you to have a performance that's good, but also a passion to perform that's good. Your actions need to be good, but also your attitude, because Jesus is not impressed with the Pharisees. Uh, he's proud of them, and he says, you see the Pharisees, how they do their deeds to be seen by men? 
he would actually say, you need to be like the Pharisees and do what they're doing and try to be holy. But then he would also say, you got to be better than the Pharisees. Why? Because they're whitewashed tombs. All the good that they're doing, the external good, external good is good, but they're doing external good without the internal desire. And so what we see here is that God is concerned with behavior and motivations. I have some examples here. It, he would expect me to obey the law to drive 55 miles an hour, Laura. I know what I'm saying. And he would expect me to like doing it because I love to honor authority. What? Whoa. He would expect me, if I were Adam and Eve, not to eat from the forbidden tree, but not to even want to eat from the forbidden tree because I have so much love for God. So it's not good enough just to say, I really want to, Satan, but no, I'm going to obey God. No, you need to always trust God. It's not okay for me to only have sexual relations with my bride. I'm supposed to only want all the time to lust after her and and I, I'm not supposed to desire anything else other than her. It's not enough for us just to restrain from wrongly gaining and using money. We're not supposed to have a love for money. Yes, we're supposed to sing and praise on Sunday mornings. And we're supposed to do so not taking God's name in vain, but having the reverence and the awe that he deserves while we do it. You see in, are you seeing the internal and the external? We're supposed to endure tribulation. And we don't have to rejoice in tribulation, but we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of our tribulation. And that's a whole lot tougher than just enduring tribulation. I have to obey God, but love obeying God, refrain from sin, but hate sin. Obey like a Pharisee, but obey better than a Pharisee. Jesus says I have to be perfect. Because my heavenly Father is perfect. Michael Horton writes, the law that Christ articulates does not ask that we do our best. And it does not ask that we improve. I'll add, it does not ask that we're doing better than someone else. It is comprehensive. It demands perfection in thought, word, and deed. And so you're starting to see how scrupulous is the judge. And you can't pull the wool over his eyes because he's everywhere present. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows all. He knows the external that he sees. He knows the internal that no one sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God also looks on the heart. God and his law become the friends just telling you like it is. On TV, we've grown up, some of us, watching Simon Cowell. He seemed to have no problem on American Idol just laying people low. You're horrible. You have no skill. You're not hitting the mark. You'll never be anything. Go sell cars. Or Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank, who has no problem saving you from being the maggot that you are. I mean, this is, these are men who cut through the junk and just tell you exactly where you stand. Kind of like the CAT scan that lets you know of the inner deformity within. Or the heart monitor that says something's just not right. The athletic coach who shows up and says, I'm proud of you, you're doing better, I like your work ethic, but you're not going to make the team. Or the mirror of truth in the story of Snow White. The law 
tells the truth. And the law never lies. And the law is part of the covenant of works. An if-then relationship that God has. If Adam and Eve, you don't eat from the tree, we'll keep enjoying this eternal intimacy that we have going on in the garden. But in the day that you eat from the tree, you'll die. If, then. Or the political nation of Israel. God had a works-based relationship with the nation of Israel. That if you do this, you will be blessed and you will live and you will prosper. But if you don't do this, it will not go well with you. And so God was always giving Israel the consequences of their sin as they're forced to wander for 40 years or they win in Jericho and then lose in Ai and so forth. This is that relationship that's like boomerang theology. Whatever you throw, it's coming back to you somehow. Karma, sowing, reaping. It's more like a contract. It's a covenant because it comes from God, but it's a contract where God says, I am going to give you payment or penalty. God's serious about that payment or penalty. Adam and Eve are excommunicated. Nations are drowned, burned, plagued, and devoted to destruction. People are forced to wander, defeated in battle, swallowed up by the ground, bitten by stakes, struck dead, eaten alive. The Bible says God's wrath is being poured out against all manner of people, preferring ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death. Hell, fire, hell and the lake of fire are real, all because... There is a God, he's an awesome God, last week's sermon, who gives you an awesome law, a gracious law, a good law. And he's the judge, and he's scrupulous. He's just, he's exact, and he doesn't play games. At this point, we're sitting here going, oh me, instead of amen. But why do I say that God is a gracious judge? Martin Luther writes, the law must be laid first for those who are going to be justified, that they can be shut up in prison until the righteousness that comes by faith comes, that when they are cast down and humbled by the law, they should fly to Christ. The law humbles them, not to their destruction, but to their salvation. God wounds that he may heal again. He kills that he may quicken again. The law shows what perfect righteousness looks like. The law then shows, therefore, what sin looks like, anything other than that. The law then highlights and shines upon you. It's the mirror that shows you who you really are. And all the law ever says to you is, that is good, you're not good. That's all the law says to you when you're looking at it in the mirror of the law to find your significance and your purpose. The law crushes. It's like a heavy burden. Michael Horton writes, it's always the word of the law, though, that brings the story to a standstill. But God's word of gospel, the new thing he will do, always keeps it moving again because the law whets the appetite for something that's not law. The law becomes the bad declaration 
which makes you hungry and thirsty? Is there somewhere where someone can tell me something good? I was once a lifeguard, and I learned in a 12-foot pool. And I was taught how to dive in the pool, go deep beneath the person. You come up underneath the person, and you grab their knees or their waist, and you turn them around so that they are now facing that way, and you're coming up behind them. And then you will lean backwards, grab them across their chest and under their arms, and you can then float back to safety. Why do you come up behind them? Because these people who have been swimming and fighting and performing are desperate. They're drowning. They're going down. They're thankful you drove, dove in the water to save them, but they're going to, to help you help them. And by helping you help them, they're going to drown both of you. So I was actually taught you may have to just cold cock the person and knock them out. You may just have to just elbow them in the nose, punch them in the face, or do something so you don't die while you lovingly save their life. That's what the law does. The law is really good news, really helpful, really gracious, really instructive. But when it acts as a judge, all it has is condemnation, no commendation. And all it does is tell you, you're not worthy. You're not going to meet the law. You can't do it. And it forces you to start looking somewhere else other than the performance of the law, which is why you see I have up here a first, second, and third use. Yes, this is not my thinking. This comes from a long line of reformers who have used the law this way. But the major use of the law, according to Mr. Calvin, is this. Not that it instructs you. The major use of the law is that the best thing it can do is point you away from performance to your priest. His name is Jesus. And that's where we also now start hearing the third voice I've talked to you about. The creation voice, the law voice, and the gospel voice. This right here, according to many, is the most important distinction that you need to make when you're reading your Bible. You open it up and you say, what is commanded versus what is promised? I have a chart for you that may help. The law is the covenant of works. Do this and you'll get payment or penalty. The gospel is the covenant of grace, which says this is what Jesus does and you get his payment while he takes your penalty. The, gospel, the law is focused on man. The gospel is focused on Jesus Christ. The law, as I said, is when every, anywhere you read where there are commands, the gospel is only the promises of God. That's why we say the law are the imperatives, thou shalt, thou shalt not. The gospel are the indicatives. This is what is your condition because of what someone else has done for you. The law says, do this, do this, do this. The gospel says, it's already been done. The law leads to condemnation all the time by itself. The gospel leads to commendation. As you hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, as you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The law will lead to frustration as you can't keep it and you're going to try to do better and you're going to get all arrogant and you might even get so arrogant that you write your own law so at least you have some you can keep. 
but pretty soon you're going to start fearing and hating and terrorizing God. You don't want anything to do with him looking at you because all he's got to do is say, all he's got is bad news for you. But the gospel causes you to comfort in what Christ has done when he says it's finished. It makes you humble as you recognize, I can't obey. And it causes you to love him who lived and died for you. Yes, the law will lead to death, and all who are found in hell will be those who didn't perform, but trusted in their own performance, even if it's religious. But the gospel leads to eternal life. And all who are found in heaven are those who didn't perform, but learned to trust in the performance of another received by faith. But now look at the last line for those of you who are all worried that this hyper-grace guy is never going to talk someday about obedience. You see, I've already told you how the law points to the gospel voice of God. It whets your appetite and says, flee to Christ. But Jesus Christ loves you. He still knows what's best. He still wants the best for you, your family, your neighbors. He's not going to sit by and not give you counsel. He'll lead you in the way you're to go. He'll remind you of things that have been taught in the scriptures. All the scripture is good, profitable for lots of different reasons. So even the gospel then at the end points you back to God's good counsel because he's still awesome and holy. And his law is gracious even when it condemns. So how do we wrap this up? How about a couple D's and we'll be done. We're foolish when we despise God's law. Satan and the devilish have no awe for God and they have no respect for his law. They hate it. Don't be one who despises God's law. We're foolish when we dismiss God's law. Universalists, well, there may be a God who, who maybe has some laws, but we're not going to worry about them because he's all just an, a really cool grandpa in the sky or antinomians. We're all saved by grace. We're saved by faith. It's not of works. Therefore, we're just going to not even worry about what God says, and we're going to do whatever we want. Fools. Don't be one who despises God's law or dismisses God's law. Don't be one who divides God's law. What do I mean by that? Dispensationalists and our Atlanta friend, Andy Stanley, take the Bible and they just basically say, all that's in the Old Testament has to do with us. Anything, all in the New Testament has to do with us. Anything in the Old Testament has nothing to do with us anymore. It's not even written for Christians. They disagree with Paul, who writes to Timothy, all Scripture, meaning Old Testament Scripture, is still profitable for lots of different things. We don't want to be those people who dismiss a large portion of God's counsel. How about this? Don't be one who dumbs down God's law. I've used the illustration before. I have no better one. The boy with the ball. Nod your head if you know where I'm going. Do you remember this illustration? Maybe not. He throws the ball in the air and he yells, I'm the greatest batter in the world. And he swings with all of his might and boom, the ball drops. So he picks it back up, knocks his cleats a bit, throws it in the air, I'm the greatest batter in the world. And he swings and misses and it drops. He's not bothered, though. That's two strikes down. He's the greatest batter in the world. So he throws it up the third time, and he swings, and this time it drops. He turns around, drops his bat, raises his hands in the air, and says, well, what do you know? 
I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. He's going to find some way, some law, some measure to make him feel good about himself. When in reality, in our righteousness, we're like the emperor walking around with no clothes. We're like Pharisees with whitewashed tombs. The rich young ruler who says, I thank you that I am not like everyone else. I've kept all these rules. This was my testimony. I didn't have too high a view of grace. I had too low a view of the law. And I actually brought it down. That if my worship looked like this, if my family looked like this, if my marriage looked like this, if my devotions looked like this, if my theology looked like this, if my sermons looked like this, I had a whole list of things that if I did, it made me better than I was, better than most, better than you. And all I had done was lower the standard of God's law. I had dumbed it down. I had diluted it. It was watered down to something that I could finally say, look how righteous I am as I get better. It's not a matter of improvement. It's not a matter of comparison. God's law is God's law, and I never love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, I'm guilty of breaking all God's law. I'm not perfect as he is perfect. I'm the one relaxing and teaching others to relax. Let's not be those people who despise, dismiss, divide, or dumb down, and let's not be the arrogant fools who double up on God's law by adding our own rules. I went to schools where we talked about how God preferred certain haircuts and certain kinds of beats and music and certain places you could watch movies. And, certain, and I've been to churches where we added all kinds of regulative principles of worship that aren't even found in the Scripture, but it made us feel good about ourselves. Stop. We're only bright and intelligent when we read God's law understand it for the grace that it is. Realize we are fools who don't keep God's law. And we die to the law. When the law kills us, it points us to Christ. Good news is coming. Really good news is coming. In a couple weeks. But you have to endure one more tough sermon. Because maybe you're sitting there and in the flow of the series, you're saying, okay, I believe in a holy God, and I believe in a holy law, and I believe there are really bad people, but I'm not one of those who are totally depraved. Next week's sermon is for you. And then, after I've given you the rope, the rope that says, I believe in a holy God, and the rope that says, and I believe in his law, Ooh. And I believe that there are sinners out there. After these first three weeks, we should be ready to realize, oh no, I've just given you enough rope for you to hang yourself. Because you don't believe God's as holy as you should believe. You don't keep God's law as you ought, with inside and the outside all the time. And there is nothing, no part of us that is left untouched by sin. For we are sinners through and through. And at that point, you're ready to transition from performance to the priest, to the Christ who keeps the law for you and then takes the penalty on his behalf. 
and all of that outside of you, without you, apart from you. It has nothing to do with you. All we do is bring the sin to the equation. He brings the salvation. It's important for us not to confuse law and gospel. Don't divorce them. They work together, but they are not the same. They're to be distinguished. And as you read your Bible now, you may be more equipped to read a text and start saying, that's law. It has no good news for me. That's promise. I'll take it. And then after you take the promise, you'll find something working in your heart where all of a sudden you'll look at those laws differently. They don't declare your identity, your significance, your way of reconciliation, but it's just good counsel. And who wouldn't want to follow the counsel of the wonderful counselor who died on the cross for their sins?